Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks very much for tuning in. We're speaking here on the morning of Friday, July 14th, 2023. Today on the show, I'm joined by New York City public advocate Jamani Williams, a Democrat first elected to the citywide position in a 2019 special election. He was at the time a member of the city council representing parts of Brooklyn. That special election also followed a 2018 run for lieutenant governor in which public advocate Williams came within just seven points of then lieutenant governor Kathy Hochul. Since becoming public advocate, he's focused on issues including criminal justice reform, public safety, housing, mental health, the city budget, of course, and much more. He won a first full term in the position of public advocate in the 2021 citywide elections. And this past year in 2022, he ran for governor against now Governor Kathy Hochul and Congressman Tom Swasey coming in second in that Democratic primary. Public Advocate Williams is here to discuss a variety of policy and political issues, hopefully to get into a lot here in the time we have together, including the recently adopted city budget for fiscal year 2024. That's that $107 billion spending plan that we've been discussing a bit here on the show if you've been listening in recent weeks. The new fiscal year began July 1st, so just a couple of weeks ago. I will also get into some things on housing policy at the city and state levels, his call for federal receivership for the city's troubled Rikers Island jail complex, and his bill in the city council that would ban solitary confinement in city jails. We'll talk a little bit about how he thinks Mayor Eric Adams' administration is doing on several fronts, including uh, some things that popped up this week uh, around how the administration responded to the June air quality emergency. And Public Advocate Williams just released a report on that with recommendations for the future, some accountability measures, and more. So a lot to get to here with Public Advocate Jamani Williams in just a moment. First, a quick reminder, if you missed any recent episodes of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics on SoundCloud or wherever you get podcasts. I've been having a whole bunch of interesting conversations with elected officials and others. Recent guests have included uh, a really interesting conversation with Westchester County Executive George Latimer talking about the politics of the suburbs and the city, Westchester's relationship with the five boroughs, Governor Hochul's uh, so far failed and stalled housing plan, uh, and a whole bunch of other things. Really interesting conversation with George Latimer. I recently spoke with New York City Comptroller Brad Lander about city budget negotiations and the city's fiscal health. Uh, New York State Senator Julia Salazar and New York State Senator Brian Kavanaugh, who are two key players in housing negotiations in Albany, got their perspectives on why so little got done in the state budget and state legislative session around housing. Uh, those were both really interesting conversations that were housing focused, which, of course, as we'll get into with Public Advocate Williams, is basically the number one crisis facing New York City and, and the state and, and the governor acknowledged that early this year. And there's been a lot of discussion about that, but so little action uh, as we've been discussing here on the show. So check out any of those episodes or others after you listen to this one. And we have some other great guests coming up next week and beyond. Uh, the next episode after this one, I'm actually going to be joined by the co-chairs of the New York City Council Progressive Caucus, Council members uh, Shahana Hanif and Lincoln Ressler. So we'll get into how the Progressive Caucus is evolving uh, there's been some turmoil there, how they tried to rally uh, progressives in the city budget negotiations. Uh, many uh, in the Progressive Caucus voted no on the new city budget. So a lot to get into uh, with the Progressive Caucus 
co-chairs in the next episode of the show. But here on this show, it's New York City Public Advocate Jamani Williams, a Democrat uh, charged with the role of city ombudsperson, fielding issues from New Yorkers about their city government uh, and other government entities, holding the mayoral administration accountable, making appointments to many boards and commissions, and other key responsibilities that fit under the title of public advocate, including that the public advocate steps in if the mayor is for some reason unable to serve uh, via resignation, death, or some other cause, and the public advocate is a non-voting member of the city council, able to introduce but not vote on legislation, and public advocate Williams, as a former city council member, has been particularly active as a legislator during his public advocate tenure. As I said, this week that we're talking, we're speaking here on Friday, July 14th, uh, Public Advocate Williams released a new report titled Orange Sky Red Alert, a review of air quality emergencies in New York City with recommendations for how New York City uh, can avoid uh, health impacts of air quality emergencies like we saw with uh, so much smoke coming into the city in early June from Canadian wildfires. Uh, avoid spikes in emergency room visits during those types of air quality emergencies and other things. In the report, the public advocate said, unfamiliar with the effects of wildfire smoke, New York City was wholly unprepared to respond to this crisis, leaving city officials scrambling uh, and much more. And it includes recommendations for action to be better prepared in the future, better, uh, more communicative with New Yorkers, and one key critique that we'll get into in just a moment was that was quite evident to just about everybody, I think, in how things unfolded in June is the importance of mayoral communication needing to be early and often. And some of the lessons that seem to be learned or we thought maybe were learned during the COVID emergency that didn't seem to happen on this air quality situation. So uh, the public advocate used this report as the basis for questions and comments at a city council oversight hearing that was held on Wednesday, uh, July 12th, to examine how the Adams administration prepared for and responded to the air quality emergency in June. So we'll get into that and a whole lot more here with New York City public advocate, Jamani Williams. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm present. Uh, I like to say I'm uh, alive and healthy. So that's a great, great thing to be. Thanks for having me. That's a good start. Yeah. Uh, thank, thanks for taking the time. Before we jump into any specifics, uh, even on this most recent report that you put out and, and some of the exchange you had with Emergency Management Commissioner Zach Iskell at the uh, city council hearing or exchanges you had with the mayor that were not direct, but were, you know, via statements and press statements and such. Um, let's just stay 30,000 feet here for a minute uh, for some sort of perspective setting. What's the state, you know, how, what's the state of New York City right now from your view as public advocate? You know, we're a, we're a year and a half into this new mayoral administration. Um the city's economy has rebounded in many ways really well from COVID at this point. We just finished a school year that was, you know, fairly close to quote unquote normal, but we know, you know, kids ha have a lot of needs to catch up from, you know, some of the COVID impacts. Um, there, there's so many, you know, crime is coming down in a lot of ways, but still well above pre-pandemic levels. Uh, the affordable housing crisis is obviously so deep and so challenging uh, we have this asylum seeker crisis going on. I mean, there's there's a lot going on, as always, in New York City. But but how do you capture how you're sort of thinking about where the city's at, 
and and the sort of state of New York City as we speak here in mid-July 2023? Well, I think you always have to think about what you're comparing it to and what exactly you're comparing. And oftentimes uh, that differs depending on what emotion someone wants to get out of someone, not actually the reality of what it is. So I, I try to look at several things. One, how is New York City compares to other cities across the country who are dealing with similar or the same things. In that regard, we are and actually have been doing much better than most cities, particularly big cities, one of and have been one of the safest cities in the country for a long time, even as um, there are real people who are being harmed and killed that we have to continue to push forward for. So in that regard, we are, I would try to make sure our temperature set there. But then, you know, in some places we're doing better than where we were, obviously, you know, during the pandemic, some places less. But we haven't made the type of systemic change to address the issues that many of us have been fighting for for a long time, way before the pandemic, which is keeping the same communities dealing with the same problems. So in that regard, I don't think there's been much movement. And the hope was uh, that we'd see some of the systemic changes uh, that we want. And it seems now that we're still fighting for some of those or even agreement on what some of those systemic changes should be and, and how we should get there. Mm-hmm. Give me one or two examples of those. I know you've been... Um obviously pushing for a whole bunch of tenant protections. Uh, we can get into the sort of debate that's going on with the um, city council just yesterday, overriding the mayor's veto of a, of a package of housing voucher expansion bills. Um, uh, I, so I know, I know tenant protections is one of those key areas, but, but when you say systemic, um, what are a couple of things you're, you're speaking to there? So we can, we can stay right at housing. We've been saying for a long time that the the real estate industry, uh, usually through very large donations, are able to keep policies that are bad for housing in general, but good for people who are investing in real estate. And so the profit of real estate uh, becomes the primary thing as opposed to actually housing people at a uh, level they can afford and a level that provides um, safe housing. And when you look at something like good cause eviction prevention, you know, you talked about in the, in the opening, the governor's housing plan, which, by the way, is not as bad as as people think. I think she did a terrible job of trying to talk. Well, she didn't try to talk to communities at all about it. That was the number one mistake. And you can't shove it down people's throat. But the things that you could do right now to address housing, we just didn't, which is something like increasing uh, the amount of housing vouchers that people can get, preventing people from being evicted in the first place, which is all a good cause eviction is doing, preventing frivolous lawsuits and evictions. Those things we didn't do. And we actually allowed lies uh, to be pervasive, similar to what we do around public safety, uh, so that we don't do the things that we actually could do. Uh, and so we're still in some of the rut that we are that we're in that we probably don't ha- didn't have to be. You know, when I ran for governor, and I, I appreciate you not mentioning the percentages. That was very kind of you. Oh, I <laughs> but, have that um, for later if we get into that. <laughs> okay, no, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but we said, you know, we have to build a million, build or preserve 
a million units of housing. So I was happy when the governor finally came around and she had a number with 800,000, which is great. And I think um, the mayor said 500K, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. which which is need to be most of it in New York City. But what was missing is there was no mention of the affordability of the unit. There was no mention of how many of those are going to be preserved. You can't have any housing plan without preservation. And so we're not digging and breaking the structural binds that are prevented us from addressing the housing. Uh, and that's just in in one category. And so we keep doing the same thing over and over. But our housing, our housing crisis is getting worse and worse. And that's even before the asylum seekers. I was going to make sure we mentioned that because the day before the first bus came of migrants who were seeking asylum, we had 50,000 people in the shelters. Mm-hmm. And the average rate time, I think, was about three, 400 days. And so it's been a problem and it's only gotten worse. Just in the in. Uh, the most recent days, these, this last you know week, um, you and others raised some big questions about how the Adams administration handled the June air quality emergency. You uh, you just participated in a press conference and a push to get the mayor to follow through on a this major Brooklyn street safety plan from McGinnis Boulevard um, that was set to move forward. And then the administration is pulling back over some questionable reasons, even though the Department of Transportation was ready to move ahead. Um, you applauded the city council for overriding the mayor's veto of housing voucher bills. Uh, we're seeing the federal monitor for the Rikers Island jails raise major questions about how the administration is running the jails, the correction commissioner's lack of transparency. Uh, you're, you're calling for federal receivership, as I mentioned. Um, that's just four big ones that have been in the news in the last week. And there's even other things that all speak to sort of how the city is being run. But what's your assessment right now of how the mayor is running the city? This is, as you've pointed out in recent days, as the mayor has pushed back against you, this is your job. You know, your job is to advocate for the public and to hold the administration accountable. So how do you how do you capture the leadership in the city right now? How do you think you know, the mayor is running city government? You know, the, the biggest concerns seems to be the difficulty um, in having conversations. And, you know, when it came to the discussions around the bills, uh, and, and I think it's not the first time, I don't know that discussions are always as fruitful um, as they could be, which leads the council, rightfully so, to have to push forward. Without the administration, I think, um, engaging the way that they could uh, and it might be and, and you see this in a lot of different administrations and so see it particularly around um, the um, public safety and policing bills you, you don't see the type of engagement i think would make it fruitful so you have to you have to move forward um, also this administration has difficulties saying that something did not happen the best way it could have and the air quality was a, just the best example of that and and quite frankly I did not expect this to blow up the way it did. It was the simplest of critiques, something that, as you mentioned, everybody knew. We could have done better in communication. Um, And instead of just saying, yes, we could do better, we'll look at your report and move forward, there was a doubling and tripling down that we did the best, we provided the best leadership that we could have. And that's just not a true statement. And I think everybody knows that except for the administration. (laughs) And when you have things like that, it makes it difficult um, to move forward the best way possible in the city. And my job is to make sure um, that that's happening. So I always say, whatever may it is, I'm a public advocate, my job is not to be a, an ally or a foe, it's to do what's best for the city. Um, so it does provide some frustrations. And I think you see it happening 
all around from the council to um, to other citywide. Um, you know, you know, I'm hoping that changes quickly so that we can have better discussions without things, you know, going the way they, they have been. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I was struck by that incident because, um, you know, I, I do think it was fairly clear that that the mayor not holding his first press conference until what was the Wednesday morning when the air had been really getting unhealthy and, and dangerous on the Tuesday uh, all throughout the day and into the evening. Um, you know, it was just sort of a glaring, you know, mistake being behind and and something that, as you say, you you would like to think elected leaders can acknowledge sometimes if they if they drop the ball a little bit. And, you know, it, it made me think back to when the mayor was running and early in office. And he said that that was something he would do because he talked a lot about sort of what his leadership style would be. And and I even remember the that um, unity press conference he had with you uh, and uh, then uh, controller nominee Lander where he said, you know, I want the public advocate to hold my feet to the fire and I want the controller to audit our agencies and all that. And obviously that's easy to say when you're still a candidate. Um, but it, you know, it, it has been, I, I think, slightly surprising to see how much he's bristled at that criticism. Um, is there a opportunity for you to talk with him, to have a moment to say, let's have, you know, let's have something of a reset here, either in your relationship with him or just how he responds to, to feedback. Do you, do you have that kind of relationship with him or is that not really possible to have that that conversation? Oh, I, well, I, I think it definitely is possible. <laughs> and we have a relationship that goes back to him as borough president. And we worked on a lot of issues together. So some of this um, is a bit surprising. And I, I would love a reset in how this goes forward. The reset has to include an acceptance that there will be critique and criticism because that's the roles of the other elected officials. Uh, I think you know, just an understanding, one, that there were other elected officials elected at the same time, and two, those elected officials don't work for the administration, independent elected, and have different jobs um, that have to get done. <laughs> so uh, working in partnership uh, does not mean that there's there's no criticism when something needs to be pointed out. Uh, and, you know, this is, a, again, a perfect example. This was the simplest of critiques. Some of our recommendations, you know, definitely forward-looking, and it's, not, it's something that Everybody knows that we could not have planned for what happened. Like we just, we just could not. And so all I was talking about was the information that we had and they had and actually started to put out from June 2nd to that first press conference. And it is clear from everyone as they watch the sky turn orange, having no idea what was going on, that it wasn't enough information and it didn't go out to enough people. <laughs> and if we can't even acknowledge that simple fact what happens when the criticism is actually on things that are more complex? And uh, if you were watching the hearing, one when I got most <laughs> frustrated is asking the commissioner, who I think is actually is doing a doing a, 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 a job that's very difficult right now. Um, and I think he's doing the best he can and, and, and is actually doing fairly well in, in many regards, but it's difficult. If given the same set of circumstances, would you do the same thing again? And it says 100%. That's just not a good way to, to move forward without having learned lessons about what we can do better and, and pretending as if and hiding behind the fact, oh, that we this is unprecedented because we know that. And I'm just dealing with what we actually knew at the time. And we've been actually, as you mentioned, pushing this since COVID. We have to find a better way to reach out to uh, the people of the of the city 
And some of that means getting on the media earlier when something like this happens, which they did, by the way, the Gray and the governor, um, when uh, we had a couple of weeks ago, another scare, which was the right thing to do. And I'll just end with saying, and, and we also said in our report, I think every level of government failed that moment in time. Uh, but my job is to um, hold the city administration and city government accountable. Mm-hmm. The city, speaking of city government, uh, and, and, and folks can look at your specific recommendations in the report. It's online, obviously. There's a variety of things about monitoring air quality and communicating and just you know setting up new systems for events like this, sort of a more systemic, uh, you know, look at, at the issue and, and what to what to do. And your office spoke with officials on the West Coast who have dealt with this more often and and a variety of recommendations in there. Um, anything else on that you want to note before I move on to something else? No, I just invite everyone to look at it. And some some just to, to the credit of the administration, some of the things we just wouldn't have had in place. And so hopefully we can start building it out now. Yeah. Um, the city budget just passed, as I mentioned. Uh, I, you know, I, I get a little mystified sometimes. I, clearly understanding the huge amount of need in the city. This is also a $107 billion budget. Um, and so you have a mayor who, you know, has taken a somewhat moderate approach on budgeting, calling for some of these, you know, programs um, to eliminate the gap, you know, saving measures, um, and proposed, you know, a variety of cuts that you and others, uh, you know, more to his left, but but most of the city council clearly opposed. Um, but but this is still a one hundred seven billion dollar budget, you know, uh, significantly up, obviously, from pre pandemic levels because it's still being boosted by federal aid. Um, but many on the left were still sort of very disappointed with it. There were twelve no votes in the city council; eleven of them were from progressives or socialists. Um, often with objections related to sort of misplaced spending priorities and and some of the smaller agency cuts that didn't get beat back by the council and and others advocating against those. You put you put out a statement saying you know you were grateful that that some of those cuts were most of those cuts were sort of beat back in negotiations uh, by the council, but there's still not you know sort of certain levels of investment going in. What, what's what do you what didn't get into the budget, or what would you have liked to have seen differently in the city budget that didn't get done? Is there anything you'd point to to say? I would have really liked to say, see half a billion, a billion, $2 billion sort of moved in different directions. Were there major investments that you think weren't made that, w- that was a big missed opportunity? Well, one, I always want to make sure we're not comparing the, 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 number, the, the size of the budget to itself because it, it is a large budget. But people always forget that the cost of everything goes up. And so when we have housing costs uh, that actually house is uh, the, the, the budget is going to go up. When you have food prices going up uh, to historic levels, of course, the budget is going to go up. So we always kind of compare it to itself, but we don't compare it to what's going on. The second thing for me that's always been particularly um, frustrating around the discussion that the mayor was having is that we don't have, um, we don't have the money the, that we need to do the things that people say we have to do. Because when we asked for support from the mayor to raise revenue from the state to address these issues, we didn't get that support. As a matter of fact, we got the opposite. There was opposing measures to revenue raising because suddenly millions and billions are gonna move out of the city, even though 
that never happens. And what we say, that's not what happens. Uh, what we said is that somebody's going to have to pay for this in some way or the other. Let's talk to millionaires and billionaires about the civic responsibility that we want them to have um, because they have the expendable income. Or what usually happens is the black and brown immigrant communities and the, the poor working class communities pay for it by having less services and having less of what they need to live. So we always pretend like somebody's not gonna pay for it and they do and the same people pay for it. So when you have that dynamic and then you cut $17 million of, out of um, services uh, at Rikers Island and you don't fully fund um, some of the gun violence measures that could have been funded and you don't put some additional money into the housing voucher programs um, that are needed, then yes, we have a problem and issue, uh, particularly when you see increases in things like law enforcement, um, because that presents a, a picture of what public safety is. That is something that all of us had agreed is not the right picture. What what happened to the days um, back in 2020? That, that was obviously a particular moment, but that was, you know, that was a amid um, a budget negotiation where the effort to reduce police funding by a billion dollars at least was front and center. You, as public advocate at the time, tried to hold up the city budget around the lack of movement of funds from uh, policing toward more community solutions, social services solutions. Obviously, uh, there was an election in 2021. Eric Adams won the election. He won it on a much more sort of uh, policing focused vision. In your mind, was that sort of somewhat the end of that discussion as a very sort of big central discussion, at least for now, because Eric Adams is the mayor and the people elected him and he, he has a very, you know, very specific vision about policing and police funding. He's talked about, yes, I want to rein in police overtime a little bit, but I don't want to put a cap on what I'm spending on public safety. There was almost no discussion about this in the budget process, very little this year again. Um, and, you know, one of the areas where some of the people in the city council who voted no, you know, were, were obviously focused was saying there's too much investment in policing and incarceration and not enough investment in community solutions. And that's obviously where you've been in, in the past as well. Um, so is that discussion sort of over for now as far as you, uh, your perspective or where does that discussion of saying to people, we want to reinvest some of this money in policing and criminal justice into things that prevent uh, violence, gun violence, crime, and you know, enhance communities. Where, what's the status of that push? Because you seem less vocal on it. The city council seems less vocal on it. You know, Comptroller Lander seems less vocal on it. Where's that discussion at? Well, I think the um, the uh, the the sounds of the times are always going to move certain things more than others and, and rise them to the to the top. I would say that public safety um, should never be a conversation that's finished. And I think that's part of the problem. Whenever we have a big fight, we get past it. We think, okay, we've just done that. And that's something that should never happen. Uh, I, I also want to say, just to go back to the election that happened in, in 2021, I think there's a very bis, a big misunderstanding of what happened there. Uh, and, and so, yes, uh, the mayor won, and the mayor won discussing public safety. Uh, so did a lot of other folks. And so I want to be clear that there wasn't just one messaging of public safety that was elected, that 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 got people elected. So quite frankly, probably three quarters of the council have a different vision around public safety that were elected by the same New Yorkers 
you have two of the three citywide electeds uh, that were elected on a, a different vision. You have the borough president of Brooklyn replacing the borough president of Brooklyn that have a different uh, different uh, vision of public safety. So I think there's a, a just been a huge misunderstanding of what actually happened on election night, uh, where a lot of people were elected, including, of course, the mayor. And I think people want to see um, public safety remain at the top, but they inherently now understand fully that law enforcement alone can't provide the public safety that we're talking about. They actually inherently understand the need to get funds to many of those other services. They understand that law enforcement should not be the primary uh, responders to people who are in mental health crisis. They understand those things. What we see are people who um, try to use emotion to override people's ability to intelligently think things through. And there's a lot of success of that in politics. And, and unfortunately, it works. And going back to the budget uh, that you spoke about where we tried to use our, our powers, and we wrote a letter. And my job, my job, I always felt was trying to move conversations forward. So I stayed away even from the number that should be cut and all this stuff. And the two things that we said is what we wanted to see was, one, a commitment to have a just transition from the policing infrastructure in the school to a infrastructure uh, that was uh, more based in a community uh, partnership and solutions around um, public safety. And the second was, if we have a hiring freeze, we should have a hiring freeze. What we had then was a hiring freeze, except for the NYPD. So we couldn't hire nurses and doctors and social workers. That because we didn't have money for it. Uh, the only thing we can hire is some new classes for PD. And so what we said then was that either we have the ability to hire the people we need for the city or we don't. It, we shouldn't say we only have the power to hire for one department. So those are the two things that we pushed forward and doing our best to uh, try to get the budget to reflect that. And similarly now we're saying if we don't have the money for the things we're saying we need for everyday New Yorkers that also provide safety, housing, food, uh, then we, how do we have the money always to increase um, law enforcement and prison uh, and that infrastructure? Um, on this budget that just passed, if you were in the council, how would you have voted? You know, I always hate those questions because it's <laughs> easy to say how, no, it's easy to say how you would vote when you're not there. Uh-huh. Uh, I do have to say um, this budget, next year's budget is going to be horrible. Um, yeah. And this year's budget wasn't as bad as it, as it could have been at the end. Um, I have not voted no on a budget yet, so I don't want to pretend somehow that might have changed. But you just don't know when you're there. And I also think people don't understand the difficulties of an omnibus budget. So I don't begrudge the no votes and I don't begrudge the yes votes because mm -hmm. I remember one vote in particular that was probably the hardest for me is when we at the uh, policing, uh, police member uh, were, were hired, we had police officers hired. That was a higher number than we even asked for. And it was, I was furious because I was trying to get these numbers way before and I didn't get it to the night of the handshake. Well, we also got a huge and historical investment in the summer youth employment program, which is something that I was fighting for for a long time. And all I said is that if we spend the same amount of money, we should spend the same amount of money we do on these 
um, offices that we do on the summer youth employment program. And when I got the numbers, I was seeing red, but we also had investment in the crisis management system. So I, I think sometimes it's hard for people to understand the omnibus budget is difficult because say what you would do when you're not in the room. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the legislators at the state and city levels get at that when they, you know, comment on on their support and you're part of a legislative body and, you, you know, you have a, a legislative leader, whether it's the speaker in the city council or others at different levels that are sort of negotiating, you know, negotiating, leading negotiations with the executive. And there's a lot of a lot of compromise that goes into it. When you say uh, next year's budget is going to be horrible, I assume you're referring to the, the fact that the city is facing a, a pretty big deficit, federal aid from the pandemic is running out, that type of thing, right? Yes, absolutely. What you're referring to, yeah. And if folks want absolutely. a little more on that, uh, that, that did come up, as I mentioned in the introduction, I recently spoke with Controller Lander here on the show, and you can find that discussion, which we were focused on on city budget negotiations in that, in that episode. So we really got into a bunch on that. There are some fairly big, uh, what are called out-year budget uh, gaps coming up, although um, you know, probably manageable, um, but but there's going to be some some tough discussions, most likely, especially as we watch to see what happens with um, tax revenue as well. If there's if there's a real challenge there with uh, the tax revenue coming in, um, I just want and I, yes, I just want to do a point again, like and particularly for the governor and the state, but also for the mayor. I really hope they rethink this revenue raising from people that we've generally just tried to protect for a very long time. We just have to raise revenue. We can't function without additional revenue being raised. And we are very clear that it's not on the regular uh, working class uh, New Yorker, which you always try to mix in sometimes. And millionaires and billionaires just haven't left um, the city. So I hope they really rethink that because you can't say no to that and then come back and say, we don't have the money that we need. They were both elected, as you well know, obviously, as as moderates, you know, for the most part, obviously, both of them had have varied platforms that that range in different ways from, you know, more progressive to more conservative in different ways and different realms. But both Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams elected being very clear in their in their campaigns that they didn't want to raise taxes on anybody, including the, the very wealthy. Um, so that, that that was something that sort of was part of what got them elected. I hear you saying you want them to rethink that, especially if there's challenging budget times. But that that was sort of core to their, you know, their vision. Um, and obviously, obviously, both got support from some of the wealthiest New Yorkers in their in their election campaigns. Well, that's 100 percent. And I think it was wrong then. It's wrong now. And some of their vision was also the things that they were going to do for city government and state government. And you can't do those things if you don't have a budget. So again, uh, we oftentimes just use emotions so people can override the ability to critically think through these things. And if you have a billion dollars to give to the Buffalo Stadium and you don't want to raise revenue and you don't want to provide additional money needed for housing vouchers, that's 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 not good. And you may be able to get people to not like kind of link those things through because you have enough money um, to get a message out. Uh, but I hope I mean, we focus on actually doing what is the best for this city and this state. And again, there wasn't just one or two people elected in those elections. There was a lot of folks mm-hmm. um, who were elected who had uh, differing points of view. Mm-hmm. The um, the city government, uh, when I had uh, city council finance chair Justin Brandon on the show had, uh, to discuss budget negotiations, we spoke in sort of early June, mid-June. Um, 
one of the first things when I asked him about the biggest challenges with the budget, one of the first things that he brought up was not actually really a, a spending issue. It was city government personnel and the issue that there are these tens of thousands of vacancies across city government and that it's hurting services, everything from processing food stamp applications to getting affordable housing deals done. Um, uh, there's big backlogs with the mayor following through on mandate mandated bus lane infrastructure because the Department of Transportation has challenges around its personnel. And then there's also other political calculations going on with some of those bus lane considerations. But but there's a real challenge with city government personnel. You've been outspoken for a long time that city government should be moving more to allowing employees more hybrid work schedules for those who can um, as a as a matter of retention of city government employees and recruitment. We're sitting here a year and a half into the mayor's term. They've made some very small steps in the direction of allowing some remote work, some hybrid work. They've made some small steps to increase salaries for some most in-demand positions. Is there anything to be done here about it, about making more of a sweeping change so that there's any chance that city government can fill these budgeted vacant tens of thousands of positions and make city government work better? Where do we stand on that issue? You know, this is just another point of, uh, I think it was needless contention because it's it's very, very clear and has been that we were moving toward a more remote world. And I'm thankful that the mayor administration finally came around, but that might've been brain cells used trying to solve some other problems. Um, and, you know, I think we just have to accept the world that we're in and adopt uh, a, a more larger remote operation. Um, that's, that's not to say we shouldn't be in the office. In my office, uh, we're now at three days a week and it's probably uh, where it's going to remain. The lowest we went, I think, was two days, and we're now at three days. Um, we were, we, obviously, we were remote during the pandemic. But I think there's a hybrid model that really, really works. And I think, um, you know, Councilman uh, Brandon, and just shout out to the council in general. I think they've been doing a good job of trying to be the balance that you don't always see in the city council. And, you know, from the budget to this hearing uh, with Chairs Brewer, Shulman, and, and Gennaro on the air quality, I think they've really been trying to do the job of the council. Uh, but, you know, this loss of this personnel is a huge issue from the things you mentioned um, to uh, cases of discrimination, uh, which the commission doesn't have enough uh, people to be able to um, investigate those. So you have those just lingering and people discriminate again and things like housing. You don't have people who can get into the housing that they need because we don't have enough inspectors. We may have concerns about how many inspectors we have uh, in the DOB, people to process uh, uh, folks uh, who need um, services uh, and assistance. Um, so this is really impacting New Yorkers on a, on a real level. Again, this is why you say you have to look at revenue raising because you can't say you have you don't have but, the money to do these things. But these are budget. I mean, but again, these are budgeted positions. There's 20,000 plus budget in the budget. They're paid for, you know, they're part of the $107 billion budget. They're paid for, they're just not filled. So the city government probably at the end of the fiscal year will again have you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in say, quote unquote savings because the the hiring you know just isn't isn't there for the budgeted positions. But um, so I, so again, I just want to say it's not lost in me yeah. that when you don't hire these these uh, lines, you actually have a huge savings. Um, and that, I don't think that that is a good way 
to do this. I don't know if that's, you know, being done intentionally or not, but there are savings that come out of not hiring folks. And we do have to hire these folks up and we do have to make sure that we have an environment that they want to work in. And I do think um, better, better embracing and advertising um, remote uh, ability where possible is, is things that we have to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, there's, there's uh, city government lawyers, uh, people processing paperwork, you know, jobs that are that are clearly sort of just office jobs that can be done from anywhere, um, you know, that that the city really hasn't moved on that on. And I'm not saying that it's that simple, but at this point, you know, this is this was a crisis going on, obviously, right as um, the mayor de Blasio's tenure was ending. This was very evident. Mayor Adams came in with this, you know, sort of clearly in front of him. Um, and and here we are a, a year and a half later. Um, the mayor, you know, again, I would say sort of to his credit, in a sense, you know, talks about not wanting things to be unfair to the many, many thousands of city employees who have to be at the job site and they cannot work remotely. And he so he's been very focused working with labor allies on on having it be you know, sort of union led related to some of these hybrid experiments. But when you do that, you have all of these many, many non-union positions that again are some of them civil service positions, but they, they could could easily be remote jobs. So it, it, it well, is so no, I, I, yeah, yeah. it is. And I think that is a fair point that the mayor raises and something that we used to talk about during the pandemic, because you did have a lot of wealthier um, and to be honest, uh, wealthier white New Yorkers who were able to go remote while um, less wealthy and working class black and brown folks had to go to work. And so these are important things to talk about. But I want to be clear, we're not talking about working class black and brown people who mostly make up city employees. And so that dichotomy is a little different now. And as I've said in the past, we inherently have differences in jobs that people can be you as fair or not fair. There are people right now that if it's snowing or raining, have to work outside. There are people right now that have a big office in a window and there's some people who are working in a closet. And so the type of job right now already has these kind of um, dichotomies in it that one could view as fair or unfair. So that's not a reason not to put in remote where you can and make sense, particularly if you're trying to address a crisis. And you can also talk about differentials uh, and pay that can address some of this issue. But, you know, if you want to address and if you want to address fairness, I would actually start with EMT workers uh, who haven't been getting paid uh, a level they should have been for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. Um, So much more to discuss there, but let's move on to a couple other things. (laughs) I just have you for about 10 more minutes here. Public advocate, Jamani Williams. Um, You have this bill to ban solitary confinement. Uh, It's a very, you know, it's got a lot of complicated language that we don't need to go into all the details on because it has built into the language, at least, what the mandatory process would be for separating individuals who are violent and monitoring them and, and certain amounts of time they can be held individually but the effort is to ban the use of solitary confinement as sort of a any any type of lengthy sort of isolation for for people. There was seemingly a good bit of momentum behind this bill last year. Where where does that stand, and and what's the forecast on that? You know, one I, I want to make clear that the monitor and others 
have noticed that violence has actually increased over the past few years, particularly since the monarchy came in. And Rikers Island, I don't believe right now is safe for people who are detained there or people who work there. And this bill has not gone into law. That's important to say because many, it's like many bills that I've dealt with, they try to blame just the mention of a bill, connect that somehow to things going wrong. And so this bill has not had any effect on the violence that's there. And we have to make note of that so people can understand that. But second, the bill is going through uh, the process, not unlike some of the the more quote unquote controversial bills um, that I tried to pass, try to make sure we get everything right. But I also wanna mention in trying to get this bill, it actually has illuminated more how dysfunctional this uh, the island actually is. And that when you try to tinker with one part, there's another part that's not operating as well. Uh, and then you try to fix that part. And then there's another part that's not functioning as well. And that there are many, many unions that, that are not just corrections that also work there, that it impacts their members. So they want to make sure their members are protected. So it's a, it's a lot more complicated than it sounds in the synopsis of the bill. And I'm not going to associate myself with something that doesn't get it right. And so we're going to we're really continue to work hard on it. Uh, there's still a lot of support. We still have a veto-proof uh, majority, uh, which we're excited about. Uh, but we're going to make sure we're not going to put something out there um, that is uh, not the right thing to do. Uh, but we're going to continue to try to hold, you know, DOC's feet to the fire because there's things they could be doing now that's, that they should be that, you know, even if the bill is not passed. Is um is it something you think will pass this year in the in the six months that remain of of 2023 is that something you're you know is that a is that I, a goal? I hope is so it, mm-hmm. i hope so um that, that definitely is a goal uh because it's 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 been a while and you know to be frank it takes a lot of resources uh from the staff of the office of public advocate and uh from you know uh, other council members who are supportive uh because a lot a lot of meetings with a lot of different people that you have to go back and forth when you make changes because like i said this, you you move one piece of the chain and the other chain you you didn't even know was going to move the way it did. And now you got to go back and forth. So it's a, it's a lot of work. It's important work, um, but it's important to mention that DOC can do some things now, uh, even without this bill that's there. And you know, keep trying to saying that it's not needed or will make things more dangerous or that solitary doesn't exist right now um, is not helpful. Let me hit on a few last things with you. We're going to have to have you back to talk housing, you know, in depth. That's been one of your major focus issues that we'll just leave to a further discussion. But um, let, let me let me ask you, you, you you've policing has been a big focus for you. Um, there's currently an acting police commissioner, Edward Caban. Do you know him well? Do you want to see him remain in that position permanently or do you have a different vision for the next police commissioner of the city? Um, I, I've, I've known. um the acting commissioner, um, just you know, peripherally from from being together in spaces, seems like a a really good guy and a, and a good person who who knows the work. <laughs> um, I have, you know, I generally don't comment on um, who I'd like to see and not see. What I would like to see <laughs> is a commissioner um, that you know steps out. And you know, I, you know, as, as much as I think uh, the previous commissioner and I um, didn't always see eye to eye, I just want to thank her for her presence in what that meant for so many people. And she commanded a lot of 
our respect uh, from law enforcement, which is important as well. Uh, and I just want to just make sure I give a, a shout to Commissioner Sewell, even as we didn't agree on everything. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to make sure there's a commissioner that can better communicate that public safety should not be reliant on just having police. I think that will make these conversations so much easier. And that when we're having conversations, the, the, the question should be like, how do we remove police from a situation? Like what infrastructure can we put in? Particularly around, uh, school is a great example. You know, there's gonna be times where things happen and our law enforcement is best used when there's an acute problem. And so when we have to have police responding to schools or this and that, the next question should be, what infrastructure do we need so we can remove a law enforcement? And we need to have, my opinion, a commissioner that, that receives that, accepts it, and can be a part of that conversation. Um, you know, and the mayor uh, having pushing a budget that increases uh, law enforcement, but decreases other, uh, other spaces is not helpful. Uh, and he's been sitting on a gun violence um, plan. It might be a year now which I just don't understand because it's actually a really good plan. The task force did a lot of good work and it really talks about, uh, you know, making sure that we have a holistic approach, focusing on the zip codes that have the most gun violence in a really good way and why the mayor won't release that, won't put it into action, but will support a budget um, that doesn't reflect what's in that report. I don't understand. Sorry, you're saying the mayor has his own plan that he's not implementing? I, to my opinion, yes, there's a task force um, that was headed uh, that was headed by his administration. OK, I have to look I have to look into that um, a little more. So uh, in our last couple of minutes here, um, the asylum seeker crisis, the mayor credited you for going to D.C., working with some federal officials, trying to push for obviously broader immigration reform, um, but also just more immediate relief. Um he was very critical of Controller Lander for not making a trip to D.C. to do that. And sort of, again, part of this pattern we discussed early on about really, you know, pretty aggressively pushing back against criticism. And he obviously uh, did this short impression of Controller Lander that, you know, uh, raised a lot of eyebrows and, and they had their own back and forth like you just had with him about the air quality stuff. Um he did. He, he does have a, a bit of a point, though, that that controller lander could have taken a trip to D.C. to, to do some of some of that lobbying, too. Right. Uh, so one, I think we got cut off. I just want to say that that report built on some of the work that many of us had already done. Uh, and it's a great report and hopefully puts it out soon and put some infrastructure money toward it. Um, I so, think this, that, so this is a different task force report than the mayor has that than the plans the mayor has put out. Yeah, this is a task force okay. that was set to look at this Got and it. put out a report on it. Uh, and that report has not been released publicly, and I've been pushing for it. I don't know why. I think it's something that all of us can get behind and stand together, which is something that the, I think the city needs to see around this issue. Um, right, we'll we'll asylum- look into that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That'll be great. Um, I, I, I would say the, the asylum seeker crisis is one where there are nuggets of truth that are always uh, pushed forward. And so, um, yes, of course, the controller um, could have gone down. Hopefully, it will go down. Uh, and yes, uh, the mayor's rightfully been pushing how much support we were not getting originally from the state, which has changed a little bit, and from the federal government, which we still need a lot more, and that we need more uh, funding. But I think sometimes the nuggets of truth are pushed forward 
to hide the fact that we're not doing everything um, that we could be doing. And one of the spaces that we could have been doing better was um, housing. And thankfully, I think it's a lot because of the push on the city council. Um, the 90-day rule was changed. Uh, but there were other things that we could have been done and should have been doing um, that we were not. And I think we have done those, some of those things earlier might have helped, um, you know, buffer some of the uh, problems and problems that we're having with uh, the daily of folks who come in, which thankfully is getting less. But I, I, I want to be clear, these problems had been existing for a very long time. Now it got exacerbated because of the uh, the migrant, the crisis that's happening in the, in the influx, but they would have been here. And I don't want to make believe that we'd have magically solved the problems we never solved if the asylum seekers weren't here, because we never wanted to invest in the places that we would that we should invest in, similar to what we're doing uh, with the budget. And, and one of those areas, uh, speaking of the budget, the controller, especially with some others calling for more dedicated funding to legal assistance to help the migrants file their paperwork so the quicker they apply for asylum, the quicker they can uh, potentially work and, and get that process moving, uh, which obviously for the mayor and the city council to allocate those funds, which they didn't really in the budget, uh, you know, doesn't require a trip to D.C., but to your point, uh, you know, in an all hands on deck moment, uh, major officials should probably at least make one journey down there to try to press um, press federal officials to get that money moving and other things. Uh, last two questions here. Speak, speaking of all of this, um, we are we're in the summer of, of 2023 now. So we're under two years from the next city election primary, the big election in the city typically is the Democratic primary for, for major seats. There's obviously some city council races that are competitive and a variety of Republicans in the city council, and they've been expanding their ranks, actually. Um, you endorsed Maya Wiley in the 2021 mayoral race. Um, is there is there be beginning talk on the left um, about a challenge from the left to Mayor Adams in that primary in, in 2025? Is that something that you're working to organize? Is that something that the progressive sort of movement that you're part of and you've led and you've been the nominee of for governor um, needs to really start planning for? Uh, so one, I did want to say that, that that legal piece is very important because regardless of what folks say, Muslims, the people seeking asylum are here legally. And if they don't fill out their forms to seek asylum within a year, then that changes. And that makes the crisis even worse because we now have people that missed the deadline to file for asylum. Um, to the question, most of the conversations that I've had have um, been around how do we hold the mayor accountable and how do we push the policies forward uh, to do that? There's actually been more talk uh, in the media about um, organizing around a candidate than has actually actually been. And, and I think folks are really focused on how do we get the policies pushing forward. That's what I'm um, focused on. Uh, I'm going to begin focusing on my reelection for public advocate. Um, and, and I think the conversation will continue uh, to grow from there. But I think it's much more outside than inside yet. But that, you know, that may change and may bubble um, as we move forward. And lastly, you, you say you're going to focus on your reelection as public advocate. But would you consider a run for mayor? I have no plans. Uh, I have no plans to, to, to run for mayor. I've run for um, you know, the jobs that I've wanted and public advocate was one, you know, there's, you know, God forbid something happens. I'm prepared to fulfill my duty and step in, but my plan is to run for public advocate. Re okay. 
All right. Thanks for covering a lot of ground with us uh, yet again. Uh, appreciate the time and we'll catch up more down the road. New York City Public Advocate, Jamani Williams. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All right. Be well. Be well.